We're studying the book of Hebrews as a church on Sunday mornings, and we're going a little bit more big picture, so we're looking at a chapter a week, and today is Hebrews 4. And in so many ways, I wish I could start the sermon with something light and cheery, but there isn't much in Hebrews 4 that's light and cheery. And so I don't want to do a bait and switch on you and pretend like it's going to be bright and cheery, because it really isn't bright and cheery. Because there isn't anything bright and cheery about this reality. About people who once have professed salvation by faith in the finished work of Christ. And then who don't profess that faith anymore. The technical word for it is apostasy. And Hebrews is dealing with this dangerous reality. That there are some like us in this room who profess faith in Christ, but because of persecution, because of trials, because of sins, because of you name it, for whatever reason, they no longer profess faith in Christ. And Hebrews is addressing this issue that's very important, it's real, and it's very sober. But this is not to say that Hebrews 4 isn't about love. In fact, I would remind you that God loves us, and so He gives us Hebrews. He doesn't just leave us to go ahead and wander off our own way and saying, well, I guess I don't really care about those dumb humans. No, in Hebrews 4, like so many times in Hebrews, there is this, there is this pleading there is this pleading, there is this affectionate, warm love of God evident. And so let's remember that, that God cares so much that He would give us these strong warnings. Maybe just one more thing before we get into the, to the gist of it today, and, and that would be something that I found kind of intriguing, and that is, here we have this warning in Hebrews 4, continuation, continuation of the warning of Hebrews 3, but this warning doesn't select out certain people and put them over in the corner and say, okay, you, you, you guys over here, you ten people, you're really on the fence. And some of you seem to already be over the fence, at least with one leg, and you are considering denying Jesus. It doesn't do that. It addresses the whole. And we pick up that language even in this chapter, but throughout. It's addressing the whole congregation. Yes, there are those in the congregation who are on the fence, maybe with a leaning over. But this is something we all need to hear. We all need to hear it, no doubt, because some of us will find ourselves in a place one day where we really need to recall these things. Also, we saw last week, because a lot of this has to do with one another's. That we're to help each other to get off the fence and get off on the right side responsibility that we would all share together. And so let's remember that today as we work our way through this tough passage that is a great passage reminding us about the greatness of Jesus. If you're fond of outlines and you find them to be helpful, I do have an outline this morning you could follow. And we'll look at five heartfelt pleas. Five heartfelt pleas to genuineness of faith or unto genuineness of faith. And if you're not fond of outlines, don't write that down. <laughs> but what I'm trying to emphasize as we work our way through chapter 4 of Hebrews, there, there are these statements that, that find themselves in the command mode, the, the pleading mode, the, the urgent cry mode where we see the love of God beckoning us, if you will, through the author of Hebrews. The first heartfelt plea to genuineness of faith is, in one word, fear. Fear. Look at verse four, uh, 1 of chapter 4 where we see that the first word, like so many other times in Hebrews, is therefore. Therefore. Therefore in light of chapter 3. Therefore in light of the terrible reality that there are those who hear the gospel. There are those who experience something of the supernatural because they're connected with the people of God. And yet they don't truly, genuinely believe. And Old Testament history is, is literally riddled with these kinds of people. That's what we learned about chapter 3. Therefore, therefore, now let's keep reading. While the promise of entering His rest, 
God's rest, divine rest, ultimate rest, true rest, still stands, let us, and here's our word, fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. You say, that sounds like a fear tactic. I'm not into that. God is. God is absolutely into fear tactics. And he's saying to professing Christians like you and like me, but specifically because there are some who want to, to think, you know, maybe I need to go back to my old life because it was easier or whatever it might be. He's saying, be afraid. Out of love, the best thing you can do is be afraid. Have a phobia of being someone who hears, professes to believe, experiences a lot of the great things that happen in the life of the church, but actually doesn't truly believe, just like we learned about in chapter 3. They never genuinely enter into the rest of God because they don't genuinely trust in this great God and His provision. Chapter 3, verse 11. Chapter 3, verse 18 spoke about this matter. We won't go back there. Our conclusion for now, or our point of application is this. Mr. and Mrs. Christian. Mr. and Ms. Christian. Just because you once professed faith in Jesus and have experienced the benefits of being associated with Jesus doesn't mean you are necessarily a genuine believer. Therefore, fear. Be afraid. As the title of the sermon in the bulletin is, be very afraid. You say, well, that's not the God I believe in. I believe in the God of love. Well, time to trade your God in on the real one. Or for the real one. This God loves us so much that He's going to say, uh, you know what? Where there's a reason to fear, you should be afraid. And there's a reason to fear. And there's a reason to fear. And here's why. Let's keep reading in verse 2. For good news. This is gospel news. For good gospel news came to us just as to them talking about Old Testament people we learned about in chapter 3. But the message they heard, recalling Psalm 95 or chapter 3 of Hebrews, if you hear His voice, the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united, really important here, by faith with those who listen. That's why we should be afraid. We should be afraid because of what we know to have been true historically. They heard good gospel news, but that is not enough to hear gospel news, good gospel news. What is required is what? Faith, trust, belief, all of those are synonymous. You have to actually, genuinely, personally, in your heart of hearts, gut level, the very core of your being, trust in God's good news provision. In this case, he's talking about the good news of the gospel of the work of Jesus. And we should be afraid knowing that history is, how about this, literally riddled with people who've been in a Christian context, a believing context, people of God context, however you want to put it, because it's true on all of those levels. And they thought because they heard and because they had some experiences that they were okay. And he's saying, it's not so. You don't become a Christian. You're not okay by osmosis. That was one of my dad's favorite words. Your room doesn't get clean by osmosis. I think it was one of my favorite practices when I was a student in college because I would like to go to Love Library at UNL and go to the stacks and lay my head on those books thinking somehow by osmosis. Sometimes I was so committed to osmosis I would even drool on those books. <clears throat> but it didn't help my grades. Not a perfect illustration, but got a, got, we lightened it up a little bit. You must actually, genuinely, in your heart of hearts, believe the gospel. And because the reality of 
this not happening is so prevalent. He says, be afraid. Let's keep reading in verse 3. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, quoting Psalm 95 yet again, as I swore in my wrath, they, that's talking about those who have not truly believed, they shall not enter my rest. Verse 3 continues. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, it says. Complete. So, so, so it's sure, it's secure, it's divine. Offer, uh, offering us to enter into that rest. But he may, God takes an oath. <laughs> you will not benefit from my rest if you don't believe. So get off the fence. It's a dangerous place to be. Verse 4 then says, For he has somewhere, quoting Genesis 2-2, Spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, quoting Psalm 95 again, he said, They shall not enter my rest. So he's making the contrast clear, vivid, black and white. There is a rest. And it's divine rest. It's the ultimate uber rest. He doesn't say that, but we would. It's the rest of all rests. It's God's rest. And you can enter into that rest. But it comes by faith. Genuine trust. And in our context, trust in Jesus. Resting. And so we should be afraid, lest it not be something we experience. Now, now whether you realize it or not, that's what you want. This is what everybody wants, whether they realize it or not. And I realize that we don't call it rest very often. We say heaven, right? We say something like that, which is fine and biblical and appropriate. He's just using this special kind of terminology from the Old Testament, talking about, you know, you know what makes heaven so great? Is that it's, it's, it's the rest of God. You're entering into His very rest. You're no longer thinking, am I, am I in? Am I out? What do I have to do? What needs to be done? Ugh. All the difficulty and, and difficulty of life. No, because of what Christ has done, because sin has been atoned for, therefore the wrath of God has been appeased, because you have Christ's righteousness, because of all that He's done, now through faith in Him, that's our bigger context, you, you can enter into that rest. And that's what we want. Rest. You see why the image is a good one? Because that's what we want, right? That's why you want a vacation so badly. <sighs> it's just a little temporary rest, but man, it sure is good. And I don't know about you, but the older I get, the more I like vacation. And I think, you can evaluate me on this, I think the longer I'm a Christian and the older I get, the more I associate vacation with heaven. And I say, you know what, I think God gives us, gives us a little bit of temporary rest along the way to, to have us have this understanding of built-in understanding that that's really what we're longing for. I know the illustration isn't perfect, but how about vacation? You know, vacation is awesome. You eat what you want to eat, what you wouldn't normally eat. I'm thinking heaven. The wedding feast of the Lamb. Now, it gets complicated because I have to get up on my vacation and work out first so I can eat whatever I want and then I feel good. But maybe in heaven we'll have different metabolisms. metabolisms, I don't know. But the illustration breaks down. I read the books I want to read. And I have more time to read my Bible devotionally and just meditate and contemplate and think. And, you know, just to, to observe things you haven't been observing and, and you just look out there at the ocean or whatever you might be looking at and you just go, <sighs> This is good. Then you go back to work. It's a little taste of the rest that is the ultimate rest, which is that ultimate entering into the rest of God. But it comes by faith in Jesus that is genuine. And if it's genuine, it is lasting. It is lasting. And because there is the real reality of some people who say they're believers and end up not being believers, he issues this command to all of these believers and he says, be afraid. 
Don't be passive. Don't be passive. Now let's move on. A second heartfelt plea to genuineness of faith is, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart. Verse 6 says, since therefore it remains for some to enter it. That's good gospel news. There's still an open door there. And those who formerly received the good news failed. We learned about them in chapter 3 to enter because of disobedience. And by the way, I just have to to inject here in chapter 3. We learned that the disobedience and unbelief are putting in the same category because unbelief shows itself in disobedience. So he uses them interchangeably. So they fail to enter because of disobedience, revealing their unbelief would be the idea. Verse 7, again he appoints a, a certain day. Today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, from Psalm 95 that is, today if you hear his voice, and here's our command, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. And this is a mouthful and a mindful and really, really rich and good argumentation that he's using here. Don't harden your hearts. Like who? Like whom? Like all those in the Old Testament we learned about who experienced temporal deliverance, who experienced the supernatural, who had the label, the people of God, and would have worn it on their shirt sleeve. We are indeed of the people of God. Right? And they had hard hearts. Disobedience, we saw last time, leading to hard-heartedness, leading to unbelief, and now we have apostasy. Don't harden your heart. Now, what ends up being so rich about his argumentation here is what he does with David and what he does with Joshua. This is fascinating, especially if you're thinking in terms of his first century audience. Okay, so he keeps track with me on this for a moment or two. Verse 7, today, uh, uh, certain day, today, saying through David. Okay, that's David in Psalm 95. David in Psalm 95 is still saying, today, okay, he's still talking about the rest, and he's urging, urging them to enter in. Don't be committed to disbelief or unbelief shown by disobedience. Today, that's David in Psalm 95. But then in verse 8, where he contrasts that with, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. What's he doing? He's doing something that might not be that impactful to us, but I think you'll appreciate it. For a first century person, a Jewish person, he is doing some some amazing, amazing biblical theology, I guess for lack of a better term. What is the rest that you would normally think of as an Old Testament person? You think of the rest as entering into the promised land. Canaan. Okay? Joshua. Enter into the rest. Years later, David, Psalm 95, is saying, enter into the rest. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. They already went into the promised land. It tells us there is a greater promised land. It tells us like the book of Hebrews would have us know again and again, there are shadows, prefigurements, types, if you will. And there's the reality, the culmination, the fullness of what it was pointing to all along. And you can't say, well, the writer of Hebrews is doing some real, you know, kind of questionable interpretation, you know, and he's finding things that aren't really there. David does this. David, who's going to be their hero? Claiming connection to David. And you know what? Let me quote David to you. David himself is saying, you know what? There is something far greater than the physical. There is something far greater. And he was saying, we should be longing and anticipating for it. And it is in Christ. It's amazing. We're learning something here a, a bit more about how our Bibles are fit together. And how 
Christian they really are in anticipation. In anticipation. Now we have room for a new covenant. One who would offer this rest. And we'll talk more about that. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Similar perspective. In Colossians 2, it's referring to Sabbath, which would be tied to this Old Testament world. And in Colossians 2.17, it says, A shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And my friends, it is catastrophic. It is catastrophic to have Shadows be what we hold on to and cling to when we have the substance revealed. It's an insult to God and that's one of the major issues Hebrews is dealing with. Don't you dare go backward. God has spoken in many different ways, let's say in many different shadows, but He's spoken in these last days days Hebrews chapter 1 and he's spoken climactically ultimately supremely in whom in his son to go back and say let's go back to the shadows and ignore God's very own son reveals a hard heart of unbelief don't do that and what becomes even worse is when people do this today and they go to not back to Judaism, which would have been the true religion, but they go to another religion somehow tied to works righteousness. And that's an, an utter perversion. It's an insult. Let's put it in these terms. It's an insult to the point of perversion to go back to Judaism because it's been fulfilled by the substance who is Christ. But now sometimes what we see is people go back to some sort of works righteousness system other than Judaism. So now it's not just complete ignorance. It's absolute perversion. Don't go back. It's unthinkable to go back. Don't go back and show your heart as hard. I love what he says now to encourage us in verse 9. So then there remains a Sabbath. A Sabbath rest. A Sabbath is not only the time of resting, but it it carries the connotations of festivity and praise and joy. This is the celebration you want to be a part of. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There's something more than the physical. Verse 10 then says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Commentators are are interesting in this. They, they, They say verse 10 sounds very Pauline. We don't know who the author to Hebrews is, but man, the end of verse 10 sounds like Paul wrote. It's because they have the same theology. Let's just make a point here about works. If you you really get it, you understand that, that God provided perfect salvation through His Son Jesus, perfect righteousness, perfect atonement, and so there's nothing left for you to do other than to have faith, to believe, to trust in Him. And you know what? You don't do any works, and in that sense, you're like God who's rested from His works. It's good. And just one more really great thing before we move on. If the Old Testament, who gives, uh, where we find promised land, Joshua, and then moving forward, we, we see years later, David is talking about a, a, a rest that we could enter into, and, and we're still, David is still looking forward to the rest. David can be speaking of a rest that's still to come when he's in the promised land. So obviously that ain't it. To whom are we looking? Just a little hint, this is a Christian church. We're looking to Christ. We're most definitely looking to Christ. And and we know this. You you, you know this. And just put some pieces together in how you read your Bible and how you think about this stuff. Think about how a first century person would have heard these words. Jesus comes on the scene, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? I will give you rest. The rest is in me. You want Sabbath? It's in me. It's in me. He is the fulfillment of these things. 
don't live in the world of shadows. What am I going to do? Go on a date with my wife tonight and go hug the shadow? Talk to her shadow? Oh, I just love you. I won't even look to her. I just turn my back on her like right now. (laughs) Oh, what a nice shadow you have. Now, I realize that this is ludicrous and it doesn't even fit perfectly, but it just shows how silly it is. This would be far more offensive. Jesus is the one who gives us the rest because his work is the work that is going to be complete and finished and perfect. And lest you somehow lose sight of that, he says, don't harden your hearts. Let's keep going now. Number three, third heartfelt plea to genuineness of faith is strive. Strive. Verse 11, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. And I don't know about you, but I just got a mild case, if not a major case of whiplash. Rest in Jesus, whose work is complete. We've been learning about His atonement, His propitiation. He's completed everything. He's done it all. And now it says, strive. You're like, what? Well, clearly He's not saying... Just do more law-keeping. And if you can just go do all of these things, striving to to earn the favor of God, it's going to work out for you. That would be an insult even to this as a literary piece of of writing. What, What must he be getting at? In our context, from everything we've seen so far, and including this chapter, he keeps saying it's about those who believe, those who trust. Those who have faith, not just those who hear, but those who believe. And so when he says strive, specifically strive to enter that rest. It's no doubt in the context of believing. It's no no doubt in the context of continuing to believe. Emphasizing that this this isn't a, 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 a passive thing. Here's the note I made to myself. It is as if we must strive to know, to remember, and keep thinking clearly about the sufficiency of Christ. The striving is in this realm that we've got to keep our heads straight and our hearts straight following that it is about Jesus and Jesus and Jesus and Jesus alone where we find rest. And in that, we've got to be striving. We don't just say, oh, yeah, I believe and everything is fine. And we pick up a little bit more to help us out in verse 11. So that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. It goes back to this genuineness of faith thing. Like in chapter, 12, chapter 3 verse 12. Your faith is a striving faith. Yes, you're trusting in Christ, but you're, you're, you're continually remembering what Christ has done and He's sufficient and He propitiated the wrath of God and your righteousness is found in Him and, and there is a certain striving that must be done in this regard lest no one fall by the same sort of disobedience. I do like the, the corporate emphasis in verse 11 so that no one may fall. Here he's saying, you need to strive, have a striving faith, if you will, so that no one may fall. Corporate emphasis. That that complements our chapter 3 from last time, the one another's. No man left behind. Going back to chapter 3, let's remind each other about who Christ is and what Christ has done and how He is our only hope and He is our sufficiency so that no one may fall. We're helping each other to remember the sufficiency of Jesus. Supporting this reasoning is one of the most intense warnings I've ever read or am aware of. Verses 12 and 13 give us this intense warning. For the Word of God is is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from His sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. 
it is going to be a long time before I just quote that verse in a generic sense. I think we can, and I think there's a legitimate place for doing that. By deduction. The Word of God is powerful. But in the original setting, in the context, the idea is clearly not, okay, boys and girls, time for our sword drill. Get your swords out. Because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. That's fine and good. Bible memory is fine and good. Not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater. By deduction, we can go there that the Word of God is generically powerful. The Word of God is living and active and it does amazing positive things like First Peter talks about something positive. Psalm 19, Psalm 119. I'm not denying that, but what I'm saying is in our context, the sword drills would mean killing one another. Because in our context, the sword is there for the use, and the use is judgment. Naked and exposed, it's not a positive thing. It's a humiliating thing to stand there naked and exposed. Immediate context would have this be about the judgment of God given and falling upon those who don't trust in Jesus. And the Word of God will judge them. It's a terrifying thing to consider. Just a couple of comments by a helpful commentary on this. The word exposed in verse 13 refers more fully to the condemned criminal whose throat is exposed. To the executioner's blade, the author places the address ease before God naked with the throat pulled back, awaiting the stroke delivered by the word that is sharper than any two-edged sword to reinforce, reinforce his contention that distrust and disobedience toward God are really the greatest dangers facing the audience and not the temporal concerns that have convinced a few that drawing back is advantageous. And I have three more quotations supporting that kind of uh, angle on things and, and I won't read them for the sake of time. Don't harden your heart. Not only that, strive. Because if you don't strive in your belief and trust in Christ, it means judgment. It means judgment. Again, my contention is this is a loving God who would tell us this. If this is reality, He's not saying, well, you know what, it's no big deal. You know, I don't want to offend anybody. If this is pending doom, he says, let me tell you about what's going to happen if you don't trust in my unique son whom I've sent and said, listen to him and believe in him. I mean, what we want to do is we want to say, well, that just, we shouldn't even read things like that. I mean, that's not going to sell. What we want to say is, you know, the God I believe in is nice. And um, we're all nice too. And maybe we should be nice to each other. And isn't that nice? I, that was a nice service. That was such a nice Bible reading. Oh, he's a nice pastor. What a nice God. I'm nice too. Isn't that nice? We're talking about the Creator God who says, it's my world, I made it. It would be illogical for me to, to not act like that. And, 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 I, and my creation, I, I just really expect one thing of my creation. Just one thing. Just treat me like I'm the creator. Just be reasonable. That's it. And we have it in different forms, but that's what he's saying when he says, love me with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Treat me like I'm God and you're not. And since the very first man and the very first woman have walked the face of the earth, we've said, I don't think so. And we might mask it. We might dress it up and God talk. But the reality is we've all sinned and we all deserve the judgment of God. And, and the other great reality is he says, 
I love sinners. The angels can't figure out why I do. But I do, and so I am going to send my unique son to become one of them and to fulfill this law of loving me with heart, soul, mind, and strength, treating me like I am the God that I am. He can become one of them, and I will then punish him as if he were them. So my sin can be atoned, and I can maintain my righteousness. And and if they trust in him instead of themselves... His righteousness can be credited to them, and so there can be reconciliation. And so what I call everyone everywhere to do is to believe, to trust, to have faith in my perfect son. And here we have people saying, I like the shadows better. Here we have people saying, "Mm, I don't think so. And so God makes no ands, ifs, or buts about it two-edged sword, executioner's blade, grabbed by the hair, head pulled back, neck exposed. Strive to have this straight in your mind. But because the gospel is a gospel of grace and mercy, he gives us more gospel-esque persuasion. Number four, fourth heartfelt plea to genuineness of faith is hold fast the gospel confession. Hold fast to your gospel confession. Hold fast to the gospel, you might even say. I love this part here. More intensity. Verse 14, since then we have a great high priest. He's not leaving us there with our necks exposed. Since then we have a great high priest. Even the way he words it is with emphasis on the, 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 the priest. We have this great high priest. He, by the way, is different from, from Aaron and his line. He, he's better. He's better than all other priests, all lesser priests. We have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. How about that one? Whoa, mind scramble. We have a great high priest. We learned about him in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3. We have a great high priest who, get this, He passed through the heavens. Now, don't check out. Think with me about this and build upon what we've been learning. We learned in chapter 2 that Jesus is fully human. Okay? He's not only human. He's also divine. But he's fully human. Chapter 2 celebrates his full humanity. And in particular, we learned he needs to be fully human if he's going to be our what? If he's going to be our priest. Okay? And here we have our priest, and we've learned about this already in the previous chapters, our priest who made propitiation, who made satisfaction, who made atonement for our sins. So this just wrath, this this God who has just wrath has been appeased. This great high priest who's made perfect atonement, who really is one of us, so he can be our perfect high priest, has passed, it says, through the heavens. Point being, he succeeded. He, he's the first human being to be able to lead that victory. As, as the one who represents us, this is delightful. The, the door is open, if you will, for our rest. Because we don't have just any kind of priest. We had a perfect atoning priest who really is our priest because he's one of us and he is passed through the heavens reconciliation has been secured i so love that statement and then he goes on to say jesus the son of god we learned about that in chapters one and two He's not just a human priest, but he, he, he's the, the God-man, the Son of God, the favored one, and, and he's our high priest. Why in the world would you ever go for some other kind of mediator? Every other mediator now, by definition, is a whack job. And you say, I want to go do that. It's no wonder there's a sword waiting for you if that's where you go, because we're talking about God's one and only unique Son, Right? Don't go somewhere else. It is foolish. It is stupid. It is ludicrous. It is an absolute offense to God. We have a high priest who are genuinely Christians. We have a high priest who has, in fact, passed through the heavens 
And he is none other than Jesus, born in Bethlehem. What does he say? The Son of God. Because of that, keep reading in verse 14. Let us hold fast. Here's our command. Let us hold fast our confession. See what he's doing? If we have that kind of high priest, you know, the, the, the logical, the natural, the, the expected thing to do would be to hold fast, as I like to say, to have a life grip, not a death grip, to have a life grip on that high priest. And the way he says it is, to hold fast our confession. What does confession mean? Well, it's to confess, public school. Um, <laughs> Our confession, it is what we say. It is what we say even if, we're, if we have to go on record as saying it. Officially, we're being tried in a court of law and you're, you, you need to say what you really believe and what's really true. It's what you're willing to say in front of other people even if it means you're going to be derided or made fun of or persecuted. Hold fast our confession. And our confession in our context is that we believe that Jesus is none other than the Son of God, that He is our High Priest who has passed through the heavens. He is our perfect atoning sacrifice. He is our righteousness. And He's saying, hold fast to that confession. Don't you dare even think about climbing up on that fence. To do so is crazy. It's crazy. Because where else are you going to go? There's nowhere else to go. Chapter 2, verse 17. He's our great high priest who has propitiated. He's passed through the heavens. Son of God. He's worthy of our devotion. Now, I don't know about you, but you might be thinking, this sure sounds like a lot of human responsibility. I guess it does. Yes, we're going to give God all the credit. Yes, the Spirit of God has to do these things. We can go down that road. Absolutely, I would affirm all those things. But please don't overlook the fact that inspired Scripture here in Hebrews says, you hold fast. And if you don't, it is judgment. Back to chapter 3. Genuine faith shows itself in these things. Why would we go anywhere else? Now, there's an objector anticipated, it seems. I mean, it's spiritual suicide to go somewhere other than to Jesus for your atonement. But it happens all the time. But there's an objector. Uh, uh, an objector. He's anticipating someone now bending your ear saying, some weasel, weaseling in, saying, I'll grant you that Jesus is great. I'll even grant you that He's the Son of God. I'll grant you that there's no one like Him. But you know, what I've found to be really helpful is to have someone to mediate for me who's more like me. My Uncle Larry, he's a priest. And you know what I like about my Uncle Larry, the priest? Is I see his sin. No, he's not perfect. I know about his past because I'm related to him. And there's something really nice about going to Uncle Larry to be a mediator for me. By the way, I don't have an Uncle Larry. but And if you have one, I'm sorry to insult. And if your Uncle Larry's a priest, I really feel bad because I'm just making this up. Um, first hour, I said, mate, this is Larry the Cucumber. Um, <laughs> but the illustration is a real one because people think like this and they talk like this and they defend their religion like this because it's through experience. And you know what? There's something nice about having somebody who understands. And oftentimes this is used to undermine the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ, Jesus, 1 Timothy chapter 2. Because, you know, we, we need another mediator too. This kind of objection is anticipated. Let's keep reading. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Objection answered. Bad objection. 
This is fantastic. But one who in every respect, no wiggle room, no weasel room, in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. How about that? It's well done. You don't need another mediator who can understand you better. Jesus understands what, what, what you're going through as far as difficulties and temptations and struggles. Chapter 2, verse 18, he's able to help. Chapter 5, verse 2, able to deal gently. Chapter 7, verse 25, able to save his people completely. Chapter 10, verse 1 and 11, able to perfect their consciences. Jesus is able, Jesus is able, Jesus is able, Jesus is able. You don't need anybody else. Isn't it good? He knows what it means to suffer. He knows what it means to be tempted. How about Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18? For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It's just amazing to see the, the different function of Christ here. He's our perfect righteousness in his finished work. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding on our behalf as we will see in the days ahead. But not only that, as the perfect man who suffered to the point of death, even death on a cross, he gets it. He understands. That's why that First Timothy passage is so, so riveted in my mind. He's the one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, and he's fittingly so because he really and truly and genuinely is one of us. And so you don't need to go to faux mediators imposter mediators insult mediators you got to go to jesus you got to go to the man who's really a man and really god number five finally fifth heartfelt plea to genuineness of faith is draw near confidently draw near confidently Verse 16 says, let us then, so it's in light of who he is, it's all tied together, let us then with confidence, interesting, it's a word that's used for speaking confidently, most would, would think it's talking about, therefore it's talking about prayer, you're going to go to God when you need help, and, and that shows itself in prayer, he doesn't use that word, but let, let us then with confidence, with bold speech, draw near to the throne of grace. How about that contrast? The throne of the judge with the two-edged sword where your head is pulled back, you're naked and exposed, no dignity, only judgment. And now because of Christ, the perfect mediator, we draw near with confidence to the throne of judgment. No, we draw confidence, we draw near to, uh, with confidence to the throne of grace. It's fantastic. We go there boldly, we go there persistently confidently, not with shame, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. I love Jesus Christ more than I've ever loved Jesus Christ. And I love Jesus Christ more than ever to the point where I'm even, in a twisted sort of way, I suppose, thankful for the reality of apostasy. I would, I would pray and ask that no one here would become an apostate and walk away. But I have to say there, there's something in God's perfect wisdom that I'm thankful for apostasy uh, regarding because I don't know if I would understand how great Jesus is if it weren't for these warnings. It just gives opportunity for us to see Jesus for who He really is. He's everything. He's everything. In the 1700s, a Scottish man with the last name Bruce, many Bruces in Scotland in the 1700s, but this man wrote a, a hymn called Where High the Heavenly Temple Stands. And it's excellent. Never heard it sung that I'm aware of, but I'm going to read it to you. I won't sing it to you. 
but I'm going to read it to you. And, and I just want you to think about what we've learned today from Hebrews chapter 4 and find, find it all theologically put to, to prose. It's just outstanding. And then we'll be done. Where high the heavenly temple stands, the house of God not made with hands, a great high priest our nature wears. The guardian of mankind appears. He who for men their surety stood and poured on earth his precious blood pursues in heaven his mighty plan the Savior and the friend of man. Though now ascended up on high, he bends on earth a brother's eye. Partaker of the human name, he knows the frailty of our frame. Our fellow sufferer yet retains a fellow feeling of our pains. And still remembers in the skies his tears, his agonies, and cries. In every pang that tends the heart, the man of sorrows had a part. He sympathizes with our grief and to the sufferer sends relief. With boldness, therefore, at the throne, let us make all our sorrows known and ask the aids of heavenly power to help us in the evil hour. With that, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this boldness that we therefore come with and come in at the throne, making our sorrows known asking aids of heavenly power to help us in the evil hour. For those who are here today who are on the fence, please use your word powerfully. Please use your word powerfully, not as an executioner. Please use your word powerfully. To bring about conviction of sin. To open blind eyes and soften hard hearts. And Lord, for those who are very far from the fence, I just would ask that you would encourage and bring delight and satisfaction in knowing that Christ is our righteousness. And it is not by our doing that He's our righteousness. It's by His finished work on our behalf. May we rejoice in this. And may we find ourselves, according to Your Spirit's work in our life, clinging to Christ and to Christ alone. In whose name we pray, amen.